On Thursday, July 2nd, 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg tumbled into its second day. What on Wednesday the 1st had been a meeting engagement was now a set battle, one with far more men on the scene and still very much at stake. On this day, Robert E. Lee and George Gordon Meade would experience the crushing weight of responsibility and loneliness of command, both issuing orders which placed tens of thousands into harm's way. And when those orders were misinterpreted or went awry, anguish from thousands who suffered the convoluted and bloody consequences. Such were the clashes this day that geographical features, fields, and orchards would be added to this nation's list of iconic landmarks. The Round Tops, Devil's Den, the Peach Orchard, Cemetery Ridge, Culps and Cemetery Hills. This is the story of some of those men and their units that transformed those landmarks into hallowed ground. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, Stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Before the first magentas and oranges of sunrise on Thursday, July 2nd, 1863, Major General George Gordon Meade and three others mounted up to survey the battlefield. To the west, north, and northeast, like thousands of fireflies, campfires flickered. What had to be of great concern, however, was that they belonged to those in Butternut and Gray. The party rode south down the length of Cemetery Ridge, down the Union line which resembled the long shank of a fishhook. Reaching their left flank, they then double-backed and rode to the hook, their right on Cemetery and Culp's Hill. Along the way, Meade's chief of artillery, Brigadier General Henry Hunt, marked battery locations, and on a hand-drawn sketch made by Engineer William H. Payne, Meade noted the positions of his infantry corps and received Payne's approval for selecting as his headquarters a little white farmhouse that sat on the eastern slope of Cemetery Ridge. On the Taney Town Road, it belonged to 51-year-old widow Lydia Leister, who lived there with the two youngest of her six children. Still awaiting the rest of his some 95,000-man army, Meade made contingency plans if battle this day went against him. With two corps battered the day before, the rest of his army, after some hard marching, was on the way. By noon that Thursday, six of his seven corps would be on the battlefield. Still, on the march, his largest, the Sixth Corps, which made up one-fifth of Meade's army. They were under Major General John Sedgwick, who demanded almost 19 continuous hours of marching. Across the way, Robert E. Lee was up before dawn as well. 
While Meade wrote about his lines, the commander of the some 75,000-man Army of Northern Virginia investigated ways to get at his enemy, and in doing so, well, he did so though he was not feeling well. Diarrhea, an evidence of a far more serious problem. One that back in March laid him low for about two weeks. Then he wrote that he experienced a good deal of pain in his chest, back, and arms. In all likelihood, the onset of heart disease, which would eventually kill him seven years later. That morning, he had out three parties of reconnaissance. They probed south toward the left flank of those in blue. One of those parties was conducted by an engineer on Lee's staff, by Captain Samuel R. Johnston. Accompanied by one of James Longstreet's engineers, Major John J. Clark, Johnston recounted that Lee wanted him to reconnoiter along the enemy's left and return as soon as possible. After some three hours, Johnston and Clark returned and found Lee seated on a log with Lieutenant Generals A.P. Hill and Longstreet. All were fixated on a map. When Lee noticed that Johnson had returned, he was called over, and standing just behind the generals, leaned over their shoulders and traced the route he had just made. When he mentioned he had been as far south as what we now know as Little Round Top, Lee turned, looked up, and asked, Did you get there? Johnston assured him he had. He stated that with the exception of some half-dozen Union cavalrymen, he did not see any large bodies of Union troops. Reconnaissance reported, Johnston backed away, and after a bit more conversation with his two corps commanders, Lee, bolstered by Johnston's information, looked at Longstreet and told him he had better move along. Johnston's recon convinced Robert E. Lee that his main attack would come that day at the battlefield's southern end, the reportedly exposed left flank of Meade's army. We will never know just what happened in those early hours of July the 2nd. We'll never know if Johnston actually scouted where he said he had. If indeed he and Clark had explored as far south as Little Round Top, it is unclear how they could not have seen or heard elements of three Federal Infantry Corps and two brigades of cavalry, some 18,000 men. We do know this. Based on Captain Samuel Johnston's information or misinformation, grave consequences were in the making. Thousands upon thousands of men would later make an attack based upon what we must today acknowledge, faulty intelligence. With the decision made before balking subordinates, Lee issued orders around 11 a.m., a late morning hour that meant Longstreet's march to the staging area would begin later than Lee wanted it. Though denied time to wait for Major General George Pickett's division, Lee did allow Longstreet to delay his march until Major General John Bell Hood's final brigade, that of Brigadier General Evander M. Law, was on the field. Still, Longstreet, without Pickett's division, made clear that, as he put it, he did not like to go into battle with one boot off. With Law's arrival, the swing to the southern end of the battlefield finally began, but most likely not before noon. 
Even as it began to step off, we should note that Law's brigade had covered about 25 miles in 11 hours just to arrive on the battlefield. In the vanguard of Longstreet's column, Major General Lafayette McClaw's division, which much to everyone's chagrin, had to halt when it became obvious that their route would be seen from a Union signal station atop Little Round Top. To further add to delay and multiply Confederate frustration, a countermarch had to be made. The most efficient manner? Simply stop and reverse order. But McClaws refused to yield leading the column, and Longstreet, who could have ordered otherwise, gave in to his demand. Therefore, the attack that Lee expected hours earlier would finally come under conditions that, quite frankly, stunned those who were asked to make it. One that was ordered to be made in echelon, wave-like, right up the Emmitsburg Road, south to north. About the time Longstreet's column stepped off, an event at Lee's headquarters. The arrival of Major General Jeb Stewart. Early that morning, he alone had spurred ahead of his mounted column on the Carlisle Road. We have no eyewitness account of the reunion, but reports were that it was, as historian Stephen W. Sears put it, abrupt and frosty. Or as Stewart's adjutant, Major Henry McClellan, described it, painful beyond description. Although we'll never know the exact dialogue that took place, it has been handed down that Lee's irritated greeting was something to the effect, Well, General, you are here at last. I have not heard a word from you for days, and you the eyes and ears of my army. The story continues that Stuart tried to soften the blow effected by his seven-day absence when he announced that, I have brought you 125 wagons and their teams, General, only to have Lee bark in response, Yes, they are an impediment to me now. According to McClellan, again the source of their interaction, with tension broken, the mood lightened. And Lee supposedly said, Let me ask your help now. We will not discuss this matter further. Help me fight these people. For Lee, another sour note on an already sour morning. Meanwhile, some 14,500 men made their circuitous way to the jumping-off point. When Claus finally arrived at his objective and personally reconnoitered the ground in front of him, there was disbelief. Instead of empty fields and open invitation to roll north up the Emmitsburg Road, the peach orchard in front of him swarmed with Federals. A word about Lafayette McClaws. Born in Augusta, Georgia, McClaws graduated from West Point at 21 years of age. And in his class of 1842, James Longstreet and Richard H. Anderson, whose division was formed that day to his left and was to cooperate in the attack. Within the same class, five Union generals who were at Gettysburg. Passed over for corps command when Lee reorganized his army, 42-year-old McClaws found himself sandwiched this morning between Lee and Longstreet's wishes. And now, at his jumping-off point, his troubles multiplied. As he later wrote, 
The view presented astonished me as the enemy was massed in my front and extended to my right and left as far as I could see. Indeed, the enemy stretched from the southern end of Cemetery Ridge to the Peach Orchard along the Emmitsburg Road and stretched back to an area locals named most appropriately Devil's Den. All landmarks that Captain Johnston's early morning reconnaissance had reported without Union presence. The situation was drastically different from what had been reported and consequently from what had been planned. When McClaws made Longstreet aware of the presented reality, Longstreet spat abruptly, There was no one in your front but a regiment of infantry and a battery of artillery. Twice more, McClaws protested, but was told to attack at the designated time. Battle is fluid, and given what had been discovered, Longstreet did order one change in his attack. Rather than McClaw's division lead the attack, it would now be John Bell Hood's on McClaw's right. Informed of that change, Hood believed his task most arduous, and reacting to his own personal reconnaissance, asked his corps commander Longstreet three times for permission to swing round the southern edge of the round tops to what was truly the exposed Federal left flank and rear. Each impassioned request was denied by a testy Longstreet. Never before had John Bell Hood protested orders from a superior officer. He did this day. Hood wanted to swing to the right of those, the Union Third Corps, which formed a militarily troublesome salient. The Third Corps, which belonged to Major General Daniel Sickles, and it had arrived on the battlefield throughout the evening of July the 1st. Sickles, a native of New York City, quite the character. His pre-war career was a shady one. As a lawyer and Tammany Hall politician, a career that flipped between legality to impropriety and back with ease. In 1857, he was elected to Congress, where he served two stormy terms. And while in Washington City, he survived controversy that would have crushed the livelihood of most men. Most damaging and notorious was the three-ring circus that surrounded his young and beautiful wife. Though a womanizer himself, when he learned that his wife, Teresa, was having an affair with a United States district attorney who just happened to be the son of Francis Scott Key, the enraged congressman, on the 27th of February, 1859, in broad daylight, shot and killed Philip Barton Key in Lafayette Square, which was right across the street from the executive mansion itself. The press had a field day, and at Sickles' trial, his team of attorneys, which included Lincoln's current Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, won acquittal when they, for the first time in American judicial history, played the now familiar card of temporary insanity. Reputation stained, it got worse when Sickles refused to divorce his wife. Though a social outcast, he survived and finished out his second term. 
when war came, the opportunist threw himself into the Lincoln camp. And though a novice in military matters, he understood what raising New York's Excelsior Brigade would bring. A uniform and commission with stars on shoulders. With the Lincolns in his corner, Sickles now cemented relations with Joseph Hooker and Daniel Butterfield. With them, more fodder for rumors. The barroom and brothel cloud that surrounded Hooker's headquarters. And with that, alienation from more reputable federal officers like John Reynolds, Henry Hunt, and one George Gordon Meade. And yet, here he was at Gettysburg and in command of the Third Corps. And he didn't like where Meade wanted him. Originally placed on the southern end of Cemetery Ridge and in the valley before Little Round Top, he thought his corps placement in a bowl. A half mile to the west, there was higher ground at a peach orchard along the Emmitsburg Road. Sickles reasoned that if the Confederates planted artillery there, his third corps was vulnerable. The concern led to a visit to Meade with a request to move, and that triggered a rise out of the old snapping turtle who held little respect for the Third Corps commander. Yet, given some degree of latitude, around 3 p.m., with skirmishers out in front, artillery to the rear, colors flying, polished swords and bayonets gleaming off the sun, and drums beating the Third Corps marched west over broken ground to the Emmitsburg Road. It was Second Corps Commander Major General Winfield Scott Hancock who watched the advance and quickly assessed that Sickles had not only isolated his 10,000-man corps some half to three-quarters of a mile in front of the rest of the Army of the Potomac, but created a salient which was vulnerable to frontal and flanking fire. Also noted, two gaps one some 400 yards long in the core center. And the half-mile gap between the third and second corps on Cemetery Ridge. Watching it unfold, Hancock commented to a group of officers, Wait a moment. You will see them tumbling back. Meade was livid. But the change also meant that Longstreet now had to modify his plan of attack at the last moment. Now the battlefield had been extended some three-quarters of a mile southward, and the broken and boulder-littered ground over which Longstreet's men would have to advance, horrific for managing and maneuvering men. A bristling mead rode to find Sickles. Face to face, the Army of the Potomac commander cut short Sickles' defense of what he had just done. And we are told that the bubbling volcano that was Meade pointed to the ground and said, General Sickles, this is neutral ground. Our guns commanded as well as the enemy's. The very reason you cannot hold it applies to them. Sickles offered to pull his corps back to its original line, but to that Meade warned, you cannot hold this position, but the enemy will not let you get away without a fight. As if on cue, Confederate artillery opened. Sickles repeated his willingness to retire, but Meade shouted over the man-made thunder, I wish to God you could, but the enemy won't let you. Without a doubt, the Third Corps wore a bullseye. Its apex at the Peach Orchard was 1,500 yards from the closest infantry support, 
It had two gaps in its line so stretched that it could not be properly manned. Thus far, for officers in both blue and gray, it had been a day fraught with frustration and orders gone awry. For Lee, Longstreet's attack would come far later than he had hoped, and for Meade, it was too late to recall Sickles' corps from its precarious position. A day that began with a botched reconnaissance, then delay, marching and counter-marching, now gave way to men and units thrown into the chaotic universe that is battle. Hood's Confederate division sweeping in and around the round tops, Devil's Den and the Wheat Field, McClaw's division into the Peach Orchard, then Anderson's division toward the southern end of Cemetery Ridge. And on Meade's right, as Lee originally ordered, a diversionary attack by Ewell's 2nd Confederate Corps was to supposedly begin at Culp's Hill. Its purpose? to pin federal troops, to keep them from reinforcing the federal left. At 3.30 p.m., under partly cloudy skies and with temperatures in the low to mid-80s, Longstreet's artillery opened. And with it, as one eyewitness later wrote, a simile of hell broke loose. With the explosive sound of battle to his left, Meade ordered Major General George Sykes to hurry his 5th Corps up from the Baltimore Pike to support Sickles' exposed 3rd Corps. As urgent orders were issued and lathered horses bore them, Hood's Confederates advanced in the direction of Devil's Den and the Roundtops. To the left of Hood's attack, his old unit, the Texas Brigade. To the right, Brigadier General Evander Law's Alabama Brigade, who, as we mentioned earlier, had already marched some 25 miles just to arrive at the battlefield. And right behind, a Georgia Brigade under Brigadier General Henry L. Benning. Broken ground forced units to come apart. And to further cloud the tactical picture, Hood, who was near the front, went down when a Federal shell exploded over his head and a fragment hammered his left arm. Command passed to law, who, as it turned out, proved indecisive that day. Consequence, the striking power of this veteran division compromised. Meanwhile, reacting to the threat, Meade dispatched his chief engineer, Brigadier General Governor K. Warren, to the top of Little Round Top to assess the situation. Perched some 150 feet above the valley immediately to the east, what he found was most distressing. First, at that moment, the only federal presence there was a flag signal station. Second, not only had Dan Sickles disobeyed orders about the placement of his third corps, he discovered that Sickles also disobeyed Meade's specific order to anchor his left on Little Round Top. And thirdly, from his vantage point, Warren could see advancing Confederates less than a mile away. Instantly, he recognized that if Little Round Top was occupied by Confederate troops, the Army's entire line running up Cemetery Ridge to Cemetery Hill to Culp's Hill was in jeopardy. Warren dispatched a rider to inform Meade, then sent Lieutenant Ronald McKenzie to find Sickles and order him to do what he should have done in the first place. Informed, Sickles said he was too hotly engaged to fall back, and then, fortuitously, Mackenzie ran into Sykes, who was leading his 5th Corps forward. 
known as Tardy George for his less-than-aggressive style, Sykes on this day was anything but. And only his fifth day of Corps command, he sent a courier to find the commander of his lead division, but instead encountered a brigade led by Colonel Strong Vincent. The brigadier's first name, indicative of this man's character. Only 26, he was a strict disciplinarian. And that at first made him quite a target for criticism. But with time, he won his men's respect. As a young man in Erie, Pennsylvania, he learned his father's trade, iron molder. But that did not stick. And so Vincent left to attend Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and then matriculated to Harvard. After his 1859 graduation, he then read law, but with the outbreak of war, he, without any military training, became the adjutant of a three-month regiment. His performance merited promotion to lieutenant colonel of the 83rd Pennsylvania. Now, at this moment on the afternoon of the 2nd of July, he immediately understood the gravity of the situation. To the aid that Sykes originally sent in search of his division commander, Brigadier General James Barnes, Vincent asked, Captain, what are your orders? Back came, where is General Barnes? The Harvard grad repeated, what are your orders? Give me your orders. To this, and pointing to the exposed western slope of Little Round Top, the aide shouted, General Sykes told me to direct General Barnes to send one of his brigades to occupy that hill yonder. To this, Vincent said, I will take the responsibility of taking my brigade there. And so, a race. Which army could get a toehold on Little Round Top? To the rocky crest, whose face had been largely cleared of timber, raced the 16th Michigan, the 44th New York, Vincent's old unit, the 83rd Pennsylvania, and the 20th Maine, a total of some 1,350 men. At around 440, 445, the 20th Maine was placed on the far left of the brigade, on the back side of Little Round Top and near the saddle between the two elevations. The southern slope of Little Round Top was tree-covered and would be the focal point of any wide-turning attack made by Confederate troops. The man who led the 20th Maine was Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who, thanks to Michael Shera's 1975 Pulitzer Prize winning The Killer Angels, Ken Burns' PBS series The Civil War, and Ted Turner's 1993 movie, Gettysburg, has risen to Mount Rushmore-like status. When Vincent led Chamberlain and the 358 men and officers of the regiment to their position on the left of the brigade, he made it clear that it was the extreme left of the Army of the Potomac's three-mile-long line, a fact emphatically reinforced when Vincent said to Chamberlain, this is the left of the Union line. You understand? Hold this ground at all costs. For Chamberlain, a setting and stage for destiny. From Shara's forward, a synopsis of a most compelling figure. Shara wrote, Colonel, 34. He prefers to be called Lawrence. A professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College, sometimes professor of natural and revealed religion. 
successor to the chair of the famed Professor Stowe, husband to Harriet Beecher. Tall and boyish, a clean and charming person. An excellent student, Phi Beta Kappa. He speaks seven languages and has a beautiful singing voice. But he has wanted all his life to be a soldier. The college will not free him for the war. But in the summer of 1862, he requests a sabbatical for study in Europe. When it is granted, he proceeds not to France, but to the office of the governor of Maine, where he receives a commission in the 20th Regiment of Infantry Maine Volunteers and marches off to war with a vast faith in the brotherhood of man. Spends the long night at Fredericksburg, piling corpses in front of himself to shield him from bullets. Comes to Gettysburg with that hard fragment of the regiment which has survived. One week before the battle, he is given command of the regiment. His younger brother, Thomas, becomes his aide. Thomas, too, has yearned to be a soldier. And the wishes of both men are to be granted on the dark rear slope of a small rocky hill called Little Round Top. Indelibly imprinted in Chamberlain's mind, Vincent's hold this ground at all costs. On a collision course on the far Confederate right, the men of the 15th and 47th Alabama who hoped to roll up the Federal left. Those two regiments that day were under Colonel William C. Oates. Unlike scholarly Chamberlain, William Calvin Oates enjoyed neither a comfortable childhood nor an excellent education. Born into a poor farming family in the Black Belt of Alabama in Pike County, he was reputed to be quite an aggressive handful. That was demonstrated when at 17 he fled to Florida after fracturing a man's skull in a brawl. For several years he drifted through Florida, Louisiana, and Texas. Along the way, he sold cigars, was a teacher, painter, carpenter, but eventually, at the urging of his younger brother, John, returned to his native Alabama. Upon his return to his native state, Oates studied law, passed the bar, and then practiced. In the summer of 61, he personally raised a company of men, the Henry Pioneers from Henry County, Alabama, and entered Confederate service as a captain in the 15th Alabama Infantry Regiment. He served in Jackson's Valley Campaign in 1862, and by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, he was 27 years of age and Colonel of the 15th. Again, it is worth noting that the 15th and Others in Law's Brigade began their day at 3 a.m. To get to the attack staging area, they had covered some 28 miles. Many canteens and bellies were empty. As the 15th and 47th Alabama moved toward the Union position, they were harassed by Federal sharpshooters on their right. Oates ordered the 15th to drive them away, and by doing so, parched, hungry, and exhausted men had to make a brutal climb over thickly wooded Big Brown Top. As they crested the elevation, they briefly rested. But even though the top was dense, Oates could see Devil's Den to his front left, the town of Gettysburg in the distance to the north, and fighting across the face of Little Round Top. With that panorama, he thought, 
Within half an hour, I could convert Big Round Top into a Gibraltar that I could hold against ten times the number of men that I had. His orders, though, were to turn the enemy's flank, and it was some 150 feet below on the back slope of Little Round Top. After a brief rest, Oates ordered his men into columns of four and began their way down. Below, Vincent's brigade had its hands full, for hardly had his regiments been placed, Confederates struck him across his front. Not including the 15th and 47th, who were on the extreme Confederate right, five more Confederate regiments, though not on a united front, were attacking the 4th, 44th, and 48th Alabama, and the 4th and 5th Texas. The 44th Alabama had veered to the left and struck Devil's Den. The others swept into the valley before the face of cleared Little Round Top. For strong Vincent's Union Brigade, they were aligned as follows from Union right to left. The 16th Michigan, the 44th New York, the 83rd Pennsylvania, and as we established earlier, the 20th Maine. Coming to grips with his unique position, the extreme left of the Army of the Potomac, Chamberlain called for Company B's Captain Walter Morrill. He ordered the 22-year-old and his company down into the expanse, farther to the left to protect the regiment's flank. Morrill executed the order, and down in the leafy green darkness he discovered a stone wall to crouch behind. Meanwhile, although the 15th and 47th Alabama drew near, Chamberlain first saw the 4th Alabama. Headed for the right of his line, Chamberlain knew a portion of his right would be struck by them and could fire up and down his entire line. As the men and units closed, the saddle between the two hills shook with volleys. With the air alive with lead, the 20th Maine's Company K commander, Lieutenant James H. Nichols, reported something strange going on behind the first wave of Confederate attackers. Chamberlain climbed a rock and now saw Oates' men in butternut and gray advancing through the saddle below him and headed for his left rear. And so it would be a geographical phenomenon. Farmers from Talladega, Alabama, were about to do battle with fishermen from Presque Isle, Maine. The two locations, 650 miles from Gettysburg, and from the site where they were about to shed blood, a near straight line might be drawn between the two. Chamberlain correctly estimated he was outnumbered some two to one. At that instance, his companies were aligned in essentially a line. However, the usual tactic to deal with a flanking column was to realign the regiment's front. But if Chamberlain did so, he would not only lose the left of the neighboring 83rd Pennsylvania, but create opportunity for Confederates to seize the high ground. On top of this, and a further hindrance to shifting the entire regiment, some of the men on his right were already in a firefight, and it would be quite difficult to move them while engaged. And so, Chamberlain reacted. He called company commanders together, gave orders, and like a living organism, the 20th reacted. The left half of the regiment was ordered to its left and rear. The right maintained its connection with the 83rd Pennsylvania, but did sidestep to the left to man the same length of line as the original. Those firing were ordered to continue to fire so as not to reveal the movement. 
Within a few anxious minutes, and with his new line resembling now a right angle, five companies of the 20th Maine now covered a front originally held by nine. Soon thereafter, the 15th Alabama charged. Companies G, C, H, and A rose up and unleashed a mighty volley. Stunned, the 15th took the sheet of lead, rallied, pushed forward, and the lines became entangled. Muskets and pistols were fired at point-blank. Bayonets flashed. Muskets became clubs. On the southern slope of Little Round Top, a monstrous noise, an audible, if you will, blur. Later, Chamberlain remembered the edge of conflict swayed to and fro with wild whirlpools and eddies. At times, I saw around me more of the enemy than of my own men, gaps opening, swallowing, closing again with sharp, convulsive energy, squads of stalwart men who had cut their way through us, disappearing as if translated, all around a strange, mingled roar. Organized lines evaporated. With a fight all across Chamberlain's front, he noticed his color guard. They were at the regiment's center, and Confederate crossfire had cut down all save two. Wreathed by smoke and wrapped in the sulfurous smell of black powder, there the survivors stood. The scene seared into Chamberlain's memory. In charges and countercharges, the Alabamians had driven the 20th Maine five times, and each time the 20th battled their way back. Twice it was done hand to hand. Men of both sides made use of every rock, tree, and boulder. Blood flowed in little rivulets and formed crimson pools. Trees on the slope were cut and gashed to a height of six feet. In front of Company F, a tree three or four inches in diameter was completely gnawed in half by bullet fire. In an hour and a half of firing, the men of the 20th Maine found themselves low on ammunition. 358 had fired almost every round of their allotted 60, over 20,000 rounds, and in return, even more from Confederate rifled muskets. With Chamberlain's men running low, now came a lull. Oates' men were reorganizing. Already he and the savage collision had lost his brother John, mortally wounded from eight bullets, the same brother that convinced him years earlier to come home. It was personal for Chamberlain, too. In the chaos, he had ordered his brother, Tom, to plug a gap. Across the shaded saddle, enduring the eerie silence, a Confederate down between two boulders spied Chamberlain out in the open and behind the center of his line. The Confederate drew a bead, but for some reason did not fire. He tried again, and once more could not bring himself to pull the trigger. Thus far, one half of the 20th Maine's left wing were down. For the entire regiment, one-third were dead or wounded. The line of those still fighting had been bent back so far that sometimes Confederate fire struck the backs of some of Chamberlain's men that made up the right wing. Along the crest of Little Round Top, the rest of Vincent's brigade were also challenged. But they held, and yet the issue was still in doubt. So much so that Chamberlain could not count on any help from the rest of the brigade. Yet the 83rd Pennsylvania did extend its left to add bodies to Chamberlain's overextended right. 
From the 20th, calls for more ammunition. Without it, the regiment would be hard-pressed to withstand another attack. It was then Chamberlain's mind fixed on a desperate plan. Fix bayonets and charge. His alignment, a right angle, made that difficult. The left would have to swing around and forward before his entire line could advance. Bleeding from a wound to his instep and left thigh badly bruised by a Confederate bullet which had struck his scabbard, Chamberlain spread the order. As word was passed, Company F's Captain Holman Melcher approached and asked permission to venture forward and collect the wounded of his company, those who had fallen in some of the countercharges. To the request, Chamberlain offered, Yes, sir, but take your place with your company. I'm about to order a right wheel forward of the whole regiment. Word circulated, and with men intently waiting, Chamberlain moved to his colors and ordered, Bayonet! While doing so, Melcher, intent on retrieving his wounded, moved forward with sword flashing, and his act was a spark. With Melcher in the lead, the colors rose in front, and like a rushing wave, men on each side of the captain rose. A yell went up, and the left wing, still meeting resistance, swept around and forward, and in doing so, not only drove away its tormentors, but swung right like a huge gate upon a post. There, as shadows lengthened on the back slope of Little Round Top, the 20th Maine's attack rolled downward into Oates' dehydrated and spent men. So much so that, in fact, Oates was in the process of withdrawing his troops. With Confederate momentum at a standstill, the 20th Maine's bayonet charge was so sudden and timely that Oates and his men were not able to fire an organized volley. As Chamberlain ran downhill, he watched a Confederate officer fire a pistol at his head. Incredibly, the shot missed. And in one continuous motion, the officer, with his other hand, offered his sword in surrender. The Alabamians, along with some elements of the 4th and 5th Texas, tried to make a stand, but then a horrible surprise. Company B, which Chamberlain had sent out just before the fight began, rose up from behind its stone wall and unleashed a volley into the staggered Confederate right and rear. Taking fire from its left, front, right and right rear, Oates ordered his men to save themselves. In their flight, the 20th Maine swept up some 400 prisoners. They had killed or wounded 150 more at a cost of some 130 casualties, 40 of those 130 killed or mortally wounded. Not only in the saddle, but all along Little Round Top's western front, the left flank of the Army of the Potomac had been severely tested. But it held. Wrapped now in darkness, the men from Maine were ordered to climb some 305 feet and occupy Big Round Top. An exhausted and wounded Chamberlain said, I am going, and the colors will follow me. It was secured around 10 p.m. The next day, July the 3rd, they were taken off the firing line. A few words to note what Shara Burns and Ted Turner might have included. No question, the tactical decisions Chamberlain made that afternoon were solid, timely. No question he is most deserving of his accolades, which included the Medal of Honor that day. But in an effort to complete the story, an interesting fact. 
Chamberlain's battle report found in the official records of the War of the Rebellion is dated July 6th, 1863. But in truth, it was actually recreated from his memory in 1884 because government editors lost the original. Combined with reported discrepancies between the 1863 and 1884 versions and from reports made by others in the fight, Chamberlain's accuracy that day at Little Round Top comes into question. Some indeed within his own 20th Maine begged to differ. Few, if any, take issue with Chamberlain's heroic leadership that day. But there were those who believed that others should have shared in the glory. Writing from memory 21 years after the fight, it would seem that Chamberlain's pen was indeed mightier than the sword. One final observation, and one that Oates later admitted. Even if the 15th and 47th Alabama had succeeded in turning the 20th, there were no fresh Confederate units. Indeed, any Confederate units in that area that would have been available to turn the 83rd Pennsylvania and the rest of Vincent's brigade. In truth, Oates' exhausted men without support would not have been able to hold or roll up anything. Again, no effort here to deny Chamberlain his remarkable due, but along with him, there are other men and units deserving of Shira, Burns, and Turner's attention. Others, for example, like Strong Vincent, who gave his life that day. So, in a desire to expand the story, suggest future storylines, and share the glory, a few candidates for a future novelist, documentarians, and screenwriters who might invest their literary and historical skills, who might applaud and extol others who contributed to Union victory that day. Yes, there were many heroes that Thursday, as events demanded, for though the crisis at Little Round Top crested and ebbed, Longstreet's attack continued to roll northward into the wheat field, the peach orchard at Trossel's farm, the southern slope of Cemetery Ridge, and sadly, so often overlooked on the Union right flank where men and units saved Meade's right at Culp's and Cemetery Hills. First, back on the contested southern end of the battlefield that Thursday, some notable men and regiments. Obeying frantic orders in response to the collapse of the Third Corps' position in the Peach Orchard, Winfield Scott Hancock ordered John Caldwell's division to move toward John Rose's 20-acre wheat field. Three brigades, one under Colonel Patrick Kelly, who led the famed Irish Brigade, a second led by Colonel E.E. E. Cross, and the third under Brigadier General Samuel Zook. Before Kelly's men moved out, Reverend Father William Corby, later the president of Notre Dame, proposed to give the Irish Brigade general absolution. Kelly called his men to attention, and then with ordered arms, Father Corby stepped up on a boulder about three feet in height and announced what he was about to do. He made clear that, as he put it, the Catholic Church refuses Christian burial to the soldier who turns his back upon the foe and deserts his flag. Men from Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania then knelt, 
and with headgear in left hand and rifled muskets in right, bowed their heads while Corby raised his right hand and in Latin pronounced words of absolution, words of comfort and personal peace, while to their left the roar of battle. And then there was Colonel Edward E. Cross, who was known as a tough, hard-fighting officer, wounded earlier at Seven Pines, at Antietam, and Fredericksburg. He was as demanding on his men as he was on himself. Ordered south to fill the gap Sickles' Third Corps had created when it advanced, Hancock himself reined up in front of his 1st Division, 1st Brigade commander, and in the midst of chaos, casually remarked, Colonel Cross, this day will bring you a star, only to have his colonel respond, no, General, this is my last battle. Indeed, only a few days before, on June the 28th, Cross had had a premonition that he would not survive his next battle and was so convinced that he asked his aide, Lieutenant Charles Hale, to attend to his private papers and belongings after his death. Usually, the no-nonsense officer went into battle without regulation officer's hat. Instead, he wore a red bandana so his men might find him. However, on this day and at this hour, he led his brigade wearing a black silk handkerchief which he had tied round his bald head. It was there, in the woods at the southern end of the wheat field, which would change hands six times that afternoon and claim some 6,000 casualties. Cross, while checking on his old regiment, the 5th New Hampshire, was shot in the stomach by a Confederate marksman. As he was carried to the rear, Sergeant Charles Phelps sought out his colonel's assassin and shot him dead. Yet in less than an hour, Phelps, too, was mortally wounded. Cross died that night. Premonition confirmed his last words, I think the boys will miss me. And right behind Cross's brigade, Brigadier General Sam Zook's mixed brigade of New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians, as his horse leaped over a stone wall in their drive to reach the threatened wheat field, he too was shot in the stomach and mortally wounded. One of four, Union generals to be killed at Gettysburg. There was almost a fifth that day. About a quarter mile from the wheat field, near his headquarters at the Trossel Farm, 3rd Corps Commander Daniel Sickles was astride his horse and surrounded by staff when Confederate solid shot struck his right leg and left it dangling just below the knee. Tourniquet applied. He was lifted onto a stretcher, and as the story goes, to dispel rumors of his death, Sickles propped himself up on one elbow, lit a Havana cigar, and drew on it most ostentatiously as he was carried to the rear. He survived, and periodically, for the rest of his life, visited the shattered bones of his amputated leg, which he donated to the Army Medical Museum in Washington, D.C. He also spent a great deal of his surviving days trying to justify his advance that day to the peach orchard. And that defense spanned decades thanks to his longevity. In fact, as a congressman after the war, Sickles proposed legislation to form the Gettysburg National Military Park. 
That action helped to also sell his defense of his actions on July the 2nd, 1863. And a final touch. To mark the park's borders on Cemetery Hill, he procured the original fencing that came directly from Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., the very site where, in 1859, he shot and killed Philip Barton Key. Later, when asked why there was no memorial to him on the battlefield, Sickles supposedly answered, the entire battlefield is a memorial to Dan Sickles. Controversial and tainted to the end, he died in early May 1914 at the age of 94. The final act of Lee's planned in echelon assault on the Union left began very late in the afternoon when Major General Richard Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps now moved on Cemetery Ridge from Seminary Ridge. Hancock, who seemed to be everywhere that day, saw the advance and reacted. Responding to this new crisis, he needed five minutes to find and pour in more reinforcements. Before a body of men, he with great urgency addressed 33-year-old Colonel William Colville, who had earlier that day just been released from arrest for a marching infraction on the way to Gettysburg. Before Colville's unit, which numbered only 262 men, a concerned Hancock asked, My God, are these all the men we have here? What regiment is this? And Colville shouted back, First Minnesota. With that, Hancock pointed to the flags of Cadmus Wilcox's Alabama Brigade and snapped, Advance, Colonel, and take those colors. The Minnesotans, with rifles at right shoulder shift and bayonets fixed, trotted down the slope of Cemetery Ridge at the double quick. No more than 30 yards from the pressing brigade of Alabamians, Colville ordered his men to halt and fire, then incredibly ordered his undersized regiment to charge an entire brigade. Confederates under Cadmus Wilcox were stunned by this determined pocket of power, and before they could recover, other Union regiments added their weight, and the air went out of Wilcox's advance. Hancock needed five minutes. He got it, and more, but at a great cost to the first Minnesota. Of the 262 who flung themselves at the Confederate brigade, only 47 were fit for combat. The 82% casualty rate, the highest of any Union regiment in the war. By around 8 p.m., Lee's and Echelon attack was spent. Success had been compromised by open-ended orders and inactivity by leading Confederate officers, like Wilcox's Division Commander Richard Anderson, 3rd Corps Commander A.P. Hill, and even Lee himself. All three, little more than spectators during the attacks. In fact, one observer noted that Lee had sent only one dispatch and received only one the entire afternoon. And yet now, on Meade's right flank, a threat. You will finally attack Culp's Hill, a site that Meade had stripped during the day to answer Confederate attacks to the south. Ewell's assault was to have come originally at 4 p.m., simultaneous with Longstreet's attack, but like the evening before, Ewell was beset by uncertainty and indecision. As a result, he had frittered away most of the afternoon. 
But now, finally, around 6.30, you will order a full-scale infantry attack. In the effort to turn the Union right, Confederates threw themselves up the slopes and broken ground of Culp's Hill and up against one brigade led by 62-year-old Brigadier General George Sears Green, an officer who, like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, was vastly outnumbered and, like Chamberlain, had to defend an exposed flank. Sadly, criminally, Green and his New York brigade have largely been neglected denied their due by those who write novels, make documentaries and movies, by those who have overlooked the great significance of what took place late in the day and into the evening at Culp's Hill. George Green looked like a fighting prophet from the Old Testament. Labeled as a grim old fighter, he was one of the oldest generals on the battlefield for either army. Second in his West Point class of 1823, after his graduation, he taught engineering at the academy. His engineering that late afternoon of July the 2nd manifested itself in ordering his New York brigade to erect field fortifications from rocks, tree stumps, cords of wood, soil, and anything that might swallow a bullet. Completed by noon, Green's diligence allowed his some 1,424 men, though on a thinly defended front, to withstand and turn back four Confederate attacks that evening. Attacks that, if successful, would have unhinged Meade's line. Around 10 that night, Green's men, with assistance by elements of the First Corps, realized their fight was over for the night. Their defense, similar to the conditions experienced by Chamberlain in the 20th Maine, was nothing short of magnificent. Green's five regiments had held out against three Confederate brigades. And that evening, a tragic story, one deserving to be told, on the slope leading to Cemetery Hill. Just after Major General Edward Johnson's Confederate division began its attacks against Green's brigade atop Culp's Hill, Jubal Early ordered two of his Confederate brigades, Harry T. Hayes, Louisianans, and a North Carolina brigade under acting commander Colonel Isaac E. Avery to attack Cemetery Hill. As darkness descended, Two brigades advanced over open ground, which allowed Union artillery on both Culp's and Cemetery Hills to rake both brigades. As one Federal gunner put it, it was one solid crash, like a million trees falling at once. With great fat drops of shot and shell lethally showering those Confederates, it took almost an hour to cross some 700 yards of rocky ground to reach the saddle between Culp's and Cemetery Hills. In the North Carolinians' advance, Avery and his mount were hit simultaneously. Both rider and horse went down. Pinned under his horse, Avery, who had been shot through the neck, was attended to by his aide and former business partner, Major Samuel Tate. Unable to speak, and with his dominant right hand paralyzed from the wound, there, in the fading light, Avery, with pencil and a scrap piece of paper, used his left hand to scribble his final words. Stained by his own blood, his message read, Major, tell my father I died with my face to the enemy. He passed the next day at the age of 34. 
Though the attack by Hayes and Avery's brigades enjoyed fleeting moments of success, Confederate support never materialized, and once again, opportunity slipped away. Finally, around 10.30, after six and a half hours of fighting, the battlefield grew silent. For the Confederates, there had been some gains, but not anywhere to the extent of what Lee had hoped, the rolling up of either of Meade's flanks. And what ground that was gained came at considerable cost. For both armies on day two, estimates range anywhere from 17 to 20,000 casualties. While frustration reigned within Confederate command, Meade and his lieutenants had taken advantage of interior lines of communication. Units were plucked and placed along their three-mile-long defensive line at not only the right places, but in many instances, the right time. Men and units had risen to the urgent occasion each time, and now, as the hour neared midnight, George Gordon Meade had one last thing to do. He called exhausted officers to a war council at his headquarters in the Leicester House along the Taneytown Road. His army had survived repeated threats, but Meade was shaken by the ferocity of the Confederate attacks. And now he wanted consensus for a likely third day of battle. About a dozen generals wedged their way into a 10-by-12-foot parlor room. The only light, a single candle on a small pine table. Amidst chrysanthemums of blue-tinged cigar smoke, weary men first chatted of the day, then were asked to respond to three questions. Should the army retreat or remain in place? If it stayed, go on the offensive or maintain its defensive posture? And if they chose defensive, how long should they wait? 12th Corps Commander Major General Henry Slocum summed up what most felt when he blurted, Stay and fight it out. As for going over to the offensive again, they were of one opinion. Remain on the defensive. Opinions varied on how long, but Meade brought the council to a close with orders to stay where they were and wait to see what Lee would do. As sleep-deprived and physically spent generals drifted back to their commands, Meade turned to Major General John Gibbon, whose division was a part of Hancock's 2nd Corps, which on Cemetery Ridge defended the center of Meade's line. And to Gibbon, Meade said, If Lee attacks tomorrow, it will be on your front. After two days of fighting and some 33 to 36,000 casualties, there would indeed be a third day. Robert E. Lee would attack, and it would be aimed at the center of Meade's line, thus setting the stage for what has been hailed the greatest infantry charge in American history. When we next gather, the last of our three episodes on Gettysburg, we'll relive a day filled with high drama, a day that brought climax and consequently victory and defeat. We'll take you to mid-afternoon, Friday, July 3rd, 1863, and put you in the rank and file of those on seminary 
and cemetery ridges, with men who were about to participate in one of the most significant events in this country's history. Next time, the doomed assault on Cemetery Ridge, the picket Pettigrew Trimble Charge. I hope you'll be with us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.